0: I want to add my own word of welcome to the church, uh, to the congregation of Wesley A.M.E. This um, chance to worship together um, monthly has been prayerfully um, a long time in the making. And so I want to welcome you on behalf of Swarthmore Presbyterian Church. And um, I want to thank Reverend Brownlee for being such a friend in this endeavor. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, speak to us again of amazing things, of a love that comes down to us that we might be raised up. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The second lesson on this third Sunday of Advent comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind received their sight, the lame walk." the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When children are born into the world, Parents are profoundly hit with a sequence of existential realizations so whopping that they almost take your breath away. For me, the sequence went like this. First, oh my gosh, this is a person. And this person is completely dependent on me for everything. Then right on the heels of that, Oh my gosh, what if something happens to me? What would happen to her? Mm. These existential realizations leave a parent feeling quite vulnerable. And it is from this vulnerable place that parenting is launched. I imagine it's not so unlike other experiences when such vulnerability is encountered that a deep compassion is stirred up and a strong sense of responsibility is called forth. I imagine that those in the medical profession whose expertise can save lives may experience this sequence of encountering vulnerability, being moved to compassion and taking responsibility for the care of their parents. I mean, patients. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that first responders to crises also know this experience well. I would expect that mayors and governors and presidents in encountering humanity in the most vulnerable situations would also be moved to compassion and responsibility. A story I remember hearing when I was growing up was that of Prince Siddhartha Gautama, born to royal parents sometime in the sixth or fifth century BCE. The prince left the palace as a young man and upon going outside the palace walls, for the first time in his life, he encountered people suffering from all different circumstances. Having such compassion for them and wanting to help them, he took responsibility for developing and teaching a path toward enlightenment. As you may know, his teaching became known as the Noble Eightfold Path, and he became known after his death as the Buddha. In the Gospels, we find stories of Jesus being so moved by compassion for people who are suffering in body, mind, and spirit that he takes it upon himself to heal them. He heals people of leprosy, who then are deemed clean by the temple priest. He heals people who have been paralyzed so they can walk. He heals those who've been blind so they can see. He casts out demons and restores a mute person's ability to speak. He even raises people from the dead. Matthew tells us that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew says. That was when Jesus... So moved by compassion for the people and seeing so many people needing healing, said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and decided to equip and send out his disciples to carry out this work. Matthew begins chapter 10 with this report. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. It is interesting, isn't it? Whom Jesus includes and equips, just regular people, including some former fishermen, a tax collector, and the person who ends up betraying him. Jesus equipped all of them with instructions and the authority to cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, according to Matthew. It is understandable that upon seeing the great crowds of people suffering, Jesus' way of taking responsibility was to empower and authorize more people to the work he had been doing himself. And that is what chapter 10 is about. In chapter 10, we find Jesus preparing his disciples with instruction, mentoring, guidance, and warnings. From the instruction Jesus gives them, we can see that their work is not going to be easy. See, Jesus says to them, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. While warning them, he also encourages them. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. There is something very encouraging, empowering, and entrusting about Jesus's approach. After all, any one of us can offer a cup of cold water to someone who is thirsty all of us can offer some compassionate response, no matter how modest, to a vulnerable person. Then we come to chapter 11, the scripture lesson that we read today. John the Baptist, Matthew tells us, is in prison. From there, he sends his students to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another Now remember, John had already met Jesus earlier. John had baptized Jesus and was therefore present when at Jesus's baptism, the spirit of God descended like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. So what are we to make of John's question? Well, Matthew tells us that while in prison, John has been hearing about what the Messiah has been doing. He hears about all the encouraging, equipping and entrusting of ordinary people. He hears that Jesus has been saying things like, it's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. What? These reports seem to shock John They don't fit into the vision of the Messiah that John thought he was prophesying about. John's prophecy was about the one who was to save Israel, not about all these other random people. So responding to John's query, Jesus says to the messengers, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Whether these things are done by Jesus, Jesus' disciples, or by people considered to be the least important, what does it matter? It seems to matter to John. Perhaps John is too caught up, too invested in whether his prophecy, which had focused its announcement on the one who was to come, was right. What matters to Jesus is that all of us, all of humanity, be encouraged, empowered, and entrusted with a sense of responsibility for those whose vulnerability moves us to compassion. What Jesus knows is the existential truth that all of us are vulnerable all of creation is vulnerable as the son of God incarnate in flesh and blood Jesus sees our absolute dependence on things beyond ourselves Jesus sees that all of us are dependent on God who created us and all of us are dependent on the world that is so much larger than us we are vulnerable not only because we're mortal but because we are not self-sufficient entities because we are interconnected with all that is around us my life is tied up with yours the well-being of any people is ultimately bound up with the well-being of all people the relationship between spc and wesley ame church has bearing on our community, and our community has bearing on God's world. The security of Israel is tied up with the well-being of Palestinians. What happens to Ukrainians will matter to the rest of the world. Our ways of life have bearing on the environment and the health of one ecosystem impacts the sustainability of the whole. Our interconnected reality is confirmed by nearly every field of study, geopolitics, ecology, economics, history, biology, and the list goes on. This awareness that we are related to that which is so much larger than ourselves and ultimately to the one who created the world and who continues to love the world has been expressed in different ways by different religions and spiritual traditions. This personal awareness and relationship to that which transcends, which goes beyond the here and now of our field of vision is what we call spirituality. At the same time, we are learning from nearly every science that we need to expand and deepen our understanding of the interconnectedness of all things The same is being shown in a new scientific study of spirituality. More and more, spirituality is being studied as a capability that can be observed and measured, just as other cognitive, social, physical, and emotional capabilities can be studied. Moreover, research shows that what spiritual people have known through their own experience, namely that spirituality can be developed with attention, or can be stunted by neglect for over 20 years. Dr. Lisa Miller, a clinical psychologist and researcher who is going to come and speak to Swarthmore, the whole community in February, has scientifically studied spiritual development in children and adolescents. What she and other researchers have found is that we are born with an innate natural spirituality. We are biologically hardwired for spiritual connection. Children present spiritual observations and questions in abundance. They wonder about God, about nature, and things they can see and can't see. Last week, two different parents shared with me that they made their way to SPC for the first time because their children were curious about church. In the first decade of life, that innate capability can develop or erode depending on the support or lack of support it receives from parents and other stable figures in their lives. Brain imaging studies have shown that during adolescence, just as there is a surge in other developmental processes, there's also a surge, a biological surge in the capacity for spirituality. Dr. Lisa Miller wanted to learn what this surge felt like to adolescents. So she and her lab interviewed hundreds of adolescents across the United States. They asked the open-ended question, what is the surge like on the inside? After talking with youth from diverse religious and spiritual orientations from coast to coast, from YMCAs and Waldorf schools, Christian summer camps and Jewish youth groups, inner city churches and Baha'i temples, observant Muslim youth, and Thai and Tibetan Buddhist youth, what they found was clear. Adolescents are profoundly spiritual they are experiencing spiritual stirrings as as the momentous and wondrous. And they are surprised that for the most part, nobody has talked to them about this experience. Nobody, even people they love dearly, has asked or commented or said something to make spiritual development part of the conversation, shared words with them that would make their inner life a spoken reality. Let's just sit with that for a while. How many times have you and I missed an opportunity to nurture the innate spiritual capability of a young person, of our own children? There are all kinds of understandable reasons for this. We could list them, drawing from our own experiences. Parents, grandparents, and other adults in children's lives may feel ambivalent about religion and spirituality for a whole host of reasons. What Lisa Miller finds is that generally speaking, while parents care deeply for their children's development in all facets of life, When it comes to spiritual development, they are simply at a loss about how to help their children develop spiritually. One expectant mother told Dr. Miller, I'm not as spiritual as I would like to be, but it definitely feels like it's there. And I I guess I can't verbalize it that well because I'm not that spiritual. Maybe if I were, I would be able to explain it better but it definitely feels bigger than myself. And that's all I can really say. Such existential awareness of a larger, transcendent reality when attended can grow into a personal relationship that gives purpose and meaning to life. It makes sense that for parents... A sense of purpose and responsibility arises from that deep sense of vulnerability they feel when they realize how wholly dependent their children are on them and on this world we live in to be a supportive place for their flourishing. It makes sense that for Christians, our sense of purpose and meaning comes from the compassion we feel when we encounter those who are most vulnerable and from the realization that in truth, insofar as everyone's existence is tied up in relation to everything else in all of creation, we are all vulnerable and thus have a responsibility for the well being of everyone and everything. By encouraging, equipping, and entrusting every one of us, Jesus invites us to find purpose and meaning. In this shared ministry. Amen.